0: The Telegraph. the Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: Five. Oh, I have a, an unfortunate tendency to get on the wrong side of just about any authority. <laughs> Four. A little bit of a pint-sized crush. <laughs> Three. If I really didn't care, I suppose I would hit Twitter and go in fighting. Two.
2: Step away from the Twitter account. Lift and welcome once again to Planet Normal, the New Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello, and me Liam Halligan. So it's blast off number four. The Planet Normal rocket's approaching warp speed. Another eye-catching interview last week with the lockdown skeptic medic Carol Sikora, which once again drove headlines and nationwide discussion of tough and convenient issues. It does seem to me, Alison, we've had thousands of people out protesting again last weekend, thousands more youngsters attending illegal quarantine raves. The lockdown's breaking up, whether the government wants it to or not.
0: Yes, Liam, I think listeners really appreciated Sikora. He such a gentle truth teller. He also uh, joked about the lockdown rules this week, saying that if his wife wanted to see the grandchildren, she'd actually have to get rid of him under the new lockdown rules because you can only have a single grandparent visiting. And that's the kind of farcical situation we're seeing at the moment. I don't know about you, Liam, but when I look at the daily press briefings and I see Boris and you know his acolytes, and I think they're living in a parallel universe where they actually think that people
2: outside number 10 are obeying any of these barmy rules. And if Carol Sakura wants to get his hair cut, as he mentioned when he talked to us, he'll have to turn himself into a dog.
0: I'm, I'm going to say something really shocking now, but I had a hairdresser come and do my hair in the back garden, but don't tell anyone, okay? <laughs>
2: Shh. As long as they didn't come in for a pee.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> they didn't set foot inside the house.
2: <laughs> so in your Telegraph column this week, Ellison, it was partly about schools. Just 7% of our kids are at school now. This is a subject we've talked about every week so far on Planet Normal. As Non-essential shops are allowed to open this week while schools remain closed to all but a minority of pupils probably until September.
0: Yeah, wasn't it amazing, Liam, to see on Monday morning all those long queues outside the sort of Nike shop. And you, I was, I was, you know, I had my mum hat on. I was thinking, why aren't all those kids in school? I mean, they can go to Primark, but they can't go to school. I think the big takeout from this week has got to be that Marcus Rashford has got to be put in charge of opening the schools because he can, he can clearly get Something done in 24 hours, which this government seems incapable of doing, and it is a national scandal.
2: It seems like a Man United centre forward is now dictating government policy, if you like, convincing the government to reverse their decision and continue free school meals across the summer holiday. What really struck me in your column, Alison, was you were talking about a study into the psychological impact on kids of being kept away from school, particularly the kids who already start out with the narrowest life chances.
0: I think that's the thing that, you know, there was an open letter from 120 child psychologists and they were really concerned that the SAGE Scientific Advisory Group doesn't have anybody on it who even thinks about the educational and psychological impact on children. And I'm sure, like me, you've heard... Both anecdotally from friends, but also more widely, really disturbing stories about adolescents who should have been doing their GCSEs and their A levels and enjoying all that great rite of passage and the proms and, you know, getting together to celebrate as young adults. And, you know, they're kicking their heels or they're welded to fortnight in their bedrooms. And I think we're going to see a lot of deep psychological problems coming out of this. That's why I I keep banging. I know it's boring, but I keep banging on about it every week.
2: I think you're right. And for those who don't have teenage kids, particularly teenage boys, Fortnite is an online game (laughs) where kids can shoot their virtual friends while talking to them through their computers. I mean, my son plays quite a bit of Fortnite. In many ways, it's been his social life for the last two or three months because he hasn't been allowed to meet his friends. So as a parent, I feel really torn about whether or not he should be able to play that game for sort of three or four hours every evening. But if you don't let him do these things, then his social life is completely absent at a time when he's forming a lot of his personality. It's it's a very, very tough dilemma for parents, isn't it?
0: But they want to be doing team sport, don't they? They want to be getting together. I don't know if you saw, it's not often I want to be French, but President Macron gave a really fantastic <laughs> speech this week, you know.
2: You've always had a crush on Macron. <laughs>
0: Little, little bit of it, yeah, a little bit of a pint-sized crush. (laughs) But he was just, you know, he just said the French schools would be returning next week.
2: We're not taking down any statues.
0: No, we're not taking down any statues. And he used a fantastic, I can't say this word, obligatoire, obligatoire, it will be compulsory. School attendance will be compulsory. And I just envied that kind of, you know, ringing certainty rather than the Boris said this week, oh, yeah, it's safe for kids to go to primary school. You think, you know, they're not open and that... That um, brings us to the Simon Dolan case, Liam. Fascinating. Simon Dolan is a businessman. And he's taking a major legal action against the government, questioning lockdown, demanding that lockdown be lifted because there's no basis for it anymore. And there was a very funny thing about schools this week where the government lawyers came back to Dolan's lawyers with this extraordinary angels dancing on a pinhead explanation, which is that schools hadn't actually been closed at all because they had just made a request for schools to close, and you could practically hear eight million parents across the country scratching their heads and thinking, "Hang on a minute!" But Boris said the school gates are going to be closed on Friday for the foreseeable future. Back in March, so,
2: yeah.
0: So what? What's he saying? They weren't closed. I mean, you know, we're getting we're getting to the point of you know it's embarrassing now, isn't it? You know.
2: Also, in your column, Alison, you discussed how you hated seeing or not seeing Winston Churchill, as you say, in that great tomb of a box, our heroic wartime leader, of course, now encased in a wooden protective stage, a statue of a man who has voted in a BBC survey, the greatest Britain ever, but whom the BBC in these fraught times now call controversial.
0: Yeah, that was my smoke coming out of my ears moment this week. I thought,
2: (laughs) Stand back. Stand back, absolutely. (laughs) Step away from the Twitter account.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Step away. But controversial in what way, so the man who did more than any other human being to defeat fascism now has to be hidden away to to protect himself from alleged anti fascists i mean you know you, you really can't make this stuff up i mean. One good thing, Liam, is that the visit of my, uh, my boyfriend, President Macron this week is they're now going to take Winston out of the box because Macron is arriving to give the Légion d'honneur to London. So he is coming out of the box. But something I felt, we mentioned this last week, didn't we, was that we have the, the, the odd treatment of the two protests. So in the first week when we had Black Lives Matter protest, when The BBC said 27 police officers were injured in largely peaceful protests. And then last weekend, we had six police officers injured in violent protests by far-right thugs. Now, I'm not denying that there was a really nasty element in the crowd over this weekend, as there was a really nasty element throwing bicycles at horses in the previous crowd. But see the difference, Liam. Yeah,
2: I must say, I mean... Yeah, you know, we work for for the Telegraph, don't we? It's hardly a niche publication, but I do think the mainstream media, in particular the broadcasters, have made major, major errors in recent years, particularly over Brexit, but also during these emerging identity wars. Calling Winston Churchill controversial, for instance, not reflecting the fact that after the Statue of Edward Carlston, the slave trader in Bristol, was thrown into the dock there. Just 13% of the British public in a subsequent poll said that they agreed that that was the right thing to do. Now, I want that statue removed, as we've discussed, but I want it removed in a lawful way. There was a lawful process going on. Various powers that be were dragging their heels in Bristol, but you don't just. Condone throwing a statue uh, unlawfully into a dock as if it's a normal thing. You don't, so, the way you, your coverage is presenting it, as if most of the population agree with the way it was done, because most of the population just don't agree with it. And that's the great problem we've got here. We've got quite extreme positions being presented as mainstream opinion when they're not. And that's why there are so many people out there who think the media has completely lost its senses and left behind the vast bulk of centre-ground, decent people across the country. The sort of people, frankly, who have made this podcast so popular after just a few weeks of our blast-off. Hugely popular.
0: (laughs) I think that if if you think of the multiplying ironies that what was Churchill known for being against appeasement... So now the people who are putting him in in his box, they are the appeasers.
2: I think, however, you know, if we go back in history, you can always find people's actions that, by the light of current opinion, seem to be really dodgy. But it's just completely mad. You know, let's rip down Baden-Powell because he led, you know, the British during the Boer War. Uh, Now, of course, we can all have huge guilt about the role of Britain in the Boer War, but at the time he was lauded on the front of every single newspaper across the UK. It was off the back of that hero worship that he founded an incredible organisation that has improved the life chances of millions and millions of ordinary folk from ordinary backgrounds, boys and girls, across the UK and across the world. And I understand, Alison, you were the sixer of the pixies.
0: (laughs) to say that that probably was that's the high point really it's been you know when I was
2: 10 that was you at your most authoritarian
0: that, that was that was I, I, I had a seconder listen I mean you know but I was, you did I, until
2: you purged her because she disagreed with you
0: <laughs> off with her head you try saying the six of the pixies when you've had you know a couple of lockdown glasses Liam it's not that easy were, were you in the scouts
2: I was I was patrol leader of the hawks Mm. and uh, the scouts were completely life changing to me i you know i came from like you a pretty ordinary background i wasn't getting all kinds of opportunities thrown my way parents were too busy working to take me anywhere but i went all over the uk with the scouts climbed many mountains lit many fires absolutely fabulous experience and i just don't like you know sort of posh columnists who think the scouts are a bit naff saying oh yeah let's just rip down Baden-Powell all across the country. You've got thousands, tens of thousands of people who have thrown their lives into being leaders in the Scouts, running troops, cub packs, brownie packs, you know, completely for no money. And, oh, yeah, let's just just make completely invalid everything good that they've done in their life for their communities and for their children. Completely outrageous.
0: If you've come from a a privileged home, then... You know the posher schools provide, don't they, lots of different activities and societies. But you know, if you come from a you know a more ordinary home, then things like the brownies and the guides and the scouts, life these lines. are the things which lifelines, things that introduce discipline and indeed hierarchy. Being the sixer of the pixies, <laughs> which I won't let you forget. <laughs>
2: Hi there, podcast fan. It's Tom Gibbs here. I'm host of the Telegraph's Audio Football Club podcast. I'm very sorry for interrupting, but I wanted to let you know that football is finally back on the menu and so is Audio Football Club. We'll be back in your podcast feed every Monday with analysis, chat and sarcasm from Mina Rizuki, JJ Ball, Matt Law and many, many more. Look for Telegraph Audio Football Club wherever you get your podcasts. So let's continue to your fabulous interview this week. Uh, Who did you speak to?
0: I spoke to the incredible Lionel Shriver. Lionel is a brilliant award-winning novelist, Probably best known for We Need to Talk About Kevin, her dark, disturbing tale of a high school massacre, which won the 2005 Orange Prize. She's just published her 14th novel, The Motion of the Body Through Space. I think you'd really like it, Liam. It it features a man having a midlife crisis, doing triathlons and buying all those (laughs) ludicrous gadgets to make up for his fading prowess. Get on with it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think he actually has a power hose, but I'm sure if Lionel had met you, she would have given him one. So she's a she's a celebrated contrarian. She also writes a column for The Spectator, in which she recently outed herself as a lockdown sceptic. You've probably seen her as a panellist on Question Time, where she causes consternation by saying things that most viewers agree with. I mean, Fiona Bruce's eyebrows are kind of arched through the top of her skull, basically. I think Lionel managed to alienate what remained of her liberal associates when she came out in favour of Brexit. We had a really interesting conversation, Lionel and I, and this is how it turned out. So, Lionel Shriver, welcome to Planet Normal. How clever of you to bring out a book when there's nothing else going on in the world to compete with it.
1: Oh, I know. I (laughs) I designed this.
0: (laughs) Lionel, I want to start with your take on lockdown. You've been pretty outspoken. As a professional observer of human nature, were you shocked by how willingly we embraced what Boris calls our captivity?
1: Yes, I was. And, you know, this doesn't sound very nice. And I I say this as a huge fan of Britain. I've made my home here. I admire this culture. I am deeply involved in the lifetime of this country. However, the British people have never more profoundly disappointed me. It seems so un-British to me just to roll over and say, all right, we'll all stay home. And I think that part of it was being able to feed into that blitz narrative. And I question that parallel. But the the not only the willingness to go into lockdown in the first place, but the bizarre attachment to being confined to your homes and not making a living and being dependent on the government. Mm-hmm. I'm just dismayed. Have you felt the leadership on both sides of the
0: Atlantic has been bad?
1: Well, I, I I say that more reluctantly about Boris because I supported him in his fight to get the UK out of the European Union. Mm-hmm. And I have always uh, wished him the best, but I have been very unhappy with the way he has dealt with this crisis. I think he caved into his own fear of a kind in creating Project Fear and... He has not shown very powerful leadership in demanding that the UK get out of lockdown and get back to work. I was really nervous when he first became ill Mm -hmm. that it was going to affect his judgment and his relationship to the virus. And so far, I'm afraid I've been proved right. As for Trump, as for Trump, you know, (laughs) as for Trump. Well, yeah, he's been a catastrophe and, you know, inconsistent, embarrassing, but you know, with Trump, when you want to express your exasperation or your despair, nothing is strong enough or extravagant enough. And people have been flinging so many nasty characterizations at him that it's kind of insult proof. Mm. And there's a way in which when people like me get on a podcast and talk about how terrible Trump is, it's condescending to the listenership because you can see for yourself. Yeah. On top
0: of the sort of feverish strains of lockdown, we've had this extraordinary reaction to the brutal killing of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis. As an American, you're you're well placed to offer some insight. Is this another temporary spasm in America's tortured relationship with its past or does it signal genuine change, do you
1: think? I'm a little afraid it does signal genuine change, but not necessarily in a direction I want to go. My original reaction to the killing was the same as everyone else's, I think,
0: hmm.
1: you know, basically, Oh my God. Hmm. And therefore my original reaction to what came across as a spontaneous public reaction was to be heartened at this sense of, uh, outrage at indecency and injustice. And, and therefore I was on side. But uh, as they've continued, I'm afraid I have become increasingly horrified. I'm on record, uh, plenty on record, as having opposed the identity politics Hmm. movement and this whole way of thinking. It's all about groups. It's all about what group you you belong to and which group is winning. It is not aimed at a sense of unified society. And that's where we're going. And it really does give me the willies. There are stories all over the place now of people losing their jobs over just the most minor diversion from the company line. And a lot of them are journalists. It makes me personally nervous because I don't always look before I leap. I'm not interested in saying... You're famous
0: for leaping before you look, which is why we love you. But, yeah, carry on. Yeah,
1: so... So I could easily get myself into trouble in this climate. There's a whole set of normal things that you could say that are not acceptable anymore. Apparently, any reference to black-on-black violence is against the rules. It's racist. So thousands of black people in the U.S. are killed every year by their own. But you're never supposed to mention that. And you're supposed to focus on the approximately 10 people who, unarmed, are, are murdered by the police. But
0: there is there is a problem. So for absolutely. the, benefit of, people, no, you, for the benefit of people in the UK, so we've seen Black Lives Matter protesters shouting at our police, stop, please don't shoot. These are unarmed British coppers. I mean, we've got the most herbivore police force on the planet. Tell, tell, <laughs> tell me I'm right, Lionel. Isn't that right? Compared to, to, compared to American cops. Ours are-
1: oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, by the way, I, I do want to go on record. It's not as if there's not a problem with American policing. There is, and i've been on the wrong side of American police also. I have a, an unfortunate tendency to get on the wrong side of just about any authority <laughs> <laughs> so, so and one of the problems is that the forces have been overly militarized. They are getting military equipment from the defense department mm. and and they train like soldiers and It's not that with a widely armed populace, you can have a police department that operates like a bunch of social workers, Mm. but there has to be a happy medium in between. And I do find that the culture of the police in the United States has a tendency to regard the public as the enemy. They're the problem. Mm. They are not people that you are trying to preserve the safety of. They are the problem.
0: Would you say we have an enviable... I mean, it's almost wrong to say that now that we had a, a black Tory minister saying that actually Britain was a pretty good country for, to be a black person in. She thought it was one of the best countries in the world. And of course, she was immediately berated for this, you know, um, heresy. But w- w- would you say that?
1: I'm not black and I, I'm not familiar enough with the experience of being black in this country to make a claim one way or the other. But I don't think it's helpful to push the minority population to, if anything, exaggerate their suffering. I think it's important for us to know where the problems are. But this hyperbolic approach of decrying systemic racism in every institution, that the entire system, the entire country, and everyone in it is corrupt and racist. Well, first off, I don't believe that to be true. And secondly, that does not admit of any solutions on a practical level.
0: Yeah, In terms of the, the sort of culture wars, I mean, for a writer, I think they're incredibly disturbing as you you know you've alluded to the feeling that some topics are off limits even if you're a very fiery free spirit as you are i mean there's a story at the moment in america that the poetry foundation said it stood in solidarity with the black community it denounced injustice and systemic racism but then in an open letter various critics said that the statement it had made was ultimately a violence because the stakes equate to no less than genocide against black people and they wanted significantly greater funds towards work, which is explicitly anti-racist in nature. Now, what are the implications for writers in, in America and here?
1: It's um, worth asking yourself, well, if we have a lot more poetry out there that's specifically anti-racist, do you want to read it? I frankly give a miss. Most of the poetry that I come across in the magazines I read anyway. <laughs> and, and the last thing I want to read is a bunch of worthy piety, right? Mm, and I, yeah. I'm afraid most people feel that way, even if they're not necessarily going to say so. That's been one of the things that's been going wrong in fiction, is that fiction writers these days are all from a very narrow political persuasion, and their books neatly line up, and there's no edge. It's, if nothing else, it's boring. You are a bit of an outlier in that
0: world. You, as we said, you supported Brexit. You have associated with 'er ne'er-do-wells like me who supported (laughs) Brexit and other inhabitants of Planet Normal. How does that go down in literary circles? I mean, do you feel a bit of a pariah? Do you feel an oddball?
1: I am um, an outlier. And I do have friends who are... Fellow writers, they don't necessarily agree with me, but they're accustomed to me, Mm. and they forgive me, (laughs) and don't renounce me personally. But I'm afraid that there is a another side to that, and i i have I have lost friendships because of my political positions. And one of my frustrations with that is that if if the if if the political positions were switched someone who's a little right of center or at least right of far left almost never renounces the left-wing friend. It's always the other way around. And that means something. It means where the intolerance is. So I can put up with having remainer friends. No problem. I forgive them too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Have you ever had any work? turned down by a publisher or a magazine because of of your opinions or or do you fear that happening?
1: Oh, I lost my Swedish publisher because they didn't like my politics. That was quite clear. Mm. I imagine there are situations that uh, I have been actively discriminated against um, and for the most part I won't know about them. Stories that have been rejected or also things that just don't happen. Like like right. what? I I'm I've, I'm not holding my breath for ever winning another literary prize in the rest of my life. Really? I I think I've basically blackballed myself. Mm-hmm. I think it would be too con- controversial to give me a prize for anything. So and you know I imagine there are probably literary festivals that have decided to stop inviting me or never start. I guess that's good for my carbon footprint. <laughs> It's also good for my work. Exactly. Less more time
0: for writing, uh, no, less time for festivals. So moving to something much more positive, we're going to celebrate yeah, you, never mind if you're banned by Swedish publishers. In your <laughs> new novel, which I really love, Lionel, The Motion of the Body Through Space, your heroine, Serenata, she makes her living as a voiceover artist for audiobooks. But then she's told... Times are changing. White readers pretending to talk like marginalized communities now counts as mimicry and cultural appropriation. And there's a fantastic line where Serenata says, let me get this straight. I'm now supposed to deliver the dialogue of a Coke dealer in Crown Heights as if he's a professor of medieval literature at Oxford. <laughs> so you have lots of funny, brilliant, great lines like that. But, but there's some very, very serious themes. So Would you read us a bit from the novel? Just let me lead into it. There's a scene when Remington, who is Serenata's husband, has been taken to an employment tribunal, accused of abusive behaviour against his female
1: African-American
0: superior.
1: Okay, and I I should clarify that the the reason he's being hauled on the mat is that he slammed his hand on his uh, superior's desk. And he's facing uh, three people who are grilling him on whether or not he's uh, a racist and a sexist. And this is Remington. My point is, I dislike my immediate superior. I concede that. I do. But not because I'm a racist or sexist or anti-immigrant. Not because I'm a whatever-phobe. a I dislike her Personally as an individual. Is that possible anymore? Is it legal to harbor animosity toward a specific person who just happens to belong to a marginalized community? Trinity. Prejudice often runs very deep and thrives on an unconscious level. I don't know how you could possibly tell the difference between this so-called personal dislike and your own bigotry. So, the answer is no. No, you cannot personally dislike anyone anymore. The answer is that your so called personal dislike is going to look suspicious to this committee. I'm afraid we're going to have to focus here on the central charge of violent assault by a subordinate in the workplace. This is Remington. But I didn't touch her. How can you call that violence? Your actions, as described, were violent. Remington. According to the Internet Dictionary at the top of my Google search, violence means, quote, behavior involving physical force intended to hurt, damage, or kill someone or something. I didn't even hurt her desk. Well, that's the dictionary definition. Remington. I think I said that was the dictionary definition. And what other definition is there? I don't want to go all Alice in Wonderland on you, but words have to mean something in particular. There's no point in using language to communicate. Naturally, none of Remington's reasoning gets him anywhere.
0: <laughs> no, it, it doesn't, but it does lead the reader to think, what you know, what does it mean? What are the implications when violence comes to mean something somebody doesn't like? I mean that—that's where we are, Lionel, isn't it?
1: Well, I'm very concerned about the use of violence. The word, the word, violence. Uh, First off, of course, we have demoted it to mean almost anything, meaning it means nothing. But I mean, this placard that is cropping up at all the protests the last few weeks: "White silence equals." violence right yeah well does that mean that if i say the demonstration has become violent that it suddenly became very quiet the word violence no longer functions as a word and this is something we all have an investment in we all use language to communicate and we need it as a
0: woman writer i have to say i envy you that you seem to lack that that female need to be liked or approved of? Would that be fair?
1: Oh, I think that's going too far. I understand your sense of envy if I really were someone who just didn't give a toss about <laughs> what other people thought of me. it—it it, it, it is an enviable condition. I can't say that I have managed to wholly embody it. In fact, I've been quite uh, forthright about the fact that one of the reasons I stay off social media is I don't want my feelings to be hurt. I do not want to present myself as a target for my antagonists. So if I really didn't care, I suppose I would hit Twitter and go in fighting and and laugh off all the insults and, and I don't. So I you know I I can still be injured and I still like a positive book review more than a negative one. I mean I'm I'm human. <laughs>
0: Well, Lionel Shriver, if we're going to have to have these culture wars, then I am personally really glad to have a warrior, a word warrior like you on our side. Thanks so much for coming to Planet Normal.
1: Well, thank you for for putting together a Planet Normal. I I wish it were a larger planet.
0: (laughs) It will be. (laughs) Soon it will be an entire universe (laughs) with me and Mr. Halligan. Anyway, thank, thank you so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure.
2: Wow Well as uh, the Washington Post once said Far from having a finger on the zeitgeist Lionel Shriver has her hands around its throat (laughs) Identity politics The intolerance of the liberal establishment The fact that Lionel Shriver You know a pretty hard-nosed commentator To say the least Also wounds, feels upset, depleted When she's criticised A very intimate interview there Alison
0: Felt great Interviewing her Liam. She is just so intelligent and brave. I guess that's that's you know, bold, brave. And I think all those times when we think you can't say that anymore, well, Lionel in her new novel and in other novels, she's just gonna go on saying it for as long as she has breath in her body. Although if you notice that even she will think I could get into trouble saying that now. And that's something that really concerns me. I don't know how you feel as a columnist. I used to just kind of jump in and say what I felt. And just quite recently, I've found myself just checking a little bit, just just, just sort of, you know, pulling on the reins a bit to think, well, maybe that wouldn't be a very good idea. And that's very alien to me. And I don't think that's right because on the one hand, I feel... I have a loyalty to my readers and now our listeners to express what they're feeling. And millions of people, as we've said, are sitting at home, you know, having these strong views, which they're not seeing expressed somewhere else. And, you know, I do feel I want to do that.
2: Yes, strong views in the sense that they're strongly held, not that they're particularly extreme or outlandish views, because they're very middle of the road views held by the silent majority of British people and they seem to have been dismissed and derided as being beyond the pale. I feel that a lot. I mean, for me personally, it was a complete career disaster to write a book, putting a moderate, reasonable, economically literate case for why we should leave the European Union uh, in terms of my chances on television and on mainstream radio. And that's the way it's so been not only an- did
0: we stand up for Brexit, I mean, I remember being, Liam Horribly was at the Hay Festival and doing a debate on Brexit. This guy opposite me, not just saying, I don't agree with you, I think it would be very bad, actually saying, I don't think Alison wants any foreign people to come to this country. And I had been that week oh, to a funeral of, a, of an Asian friend and I'd uh, delivered the eulogy. So I just was surging with feeling about that. And I just thought, If she was here now to hear this man describing me in those terms, you know, I know she'd have been furious. So, in a way, it was fine. But coming back to what Lionel's saying about. What is the implication for literature and for art if you cannot do mimicry, as it's now called? So what it comes down to, Liam, is as a writer, as a a fiction writer, you're literally going to be only allowed to write memoir about yourself. And that's going to be an impoverishment of literature and of, of what literature does, which is to take us into the imaginations and into the souls of other human beings with whom we share a
2: lot in common. So let's just scrap Othello, right? <laughs> yeah. Oh, crikey. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah. If they if they come for Shakespeare, I'm, I think you know some of <laughs> us are gonna we're gonna we're gonna form a protective ring. But no, seriously, nobody will be safe. I mean, Lionel told me she'd spoken to one publisher who said that they would no longer be able to publish Alexander McCall Smith's Number One Ladies Detective Agency because it was about black women written by a, Sc- a white Scottish man. And if anyone's read those novels, the McCall Smith novels, they're full of joy and affection. I don't think anyone could read those books and think, you know, this is cultural appropriation, this is racism.
2: Well, the outrage machine is going to continue in overdrive, I think. So let's just finish with some messages from readers and, and Planet Normal listeners. I must say, I think one of the most important mails we've had so far, Alison, and you and I, when when it Came to the Planet Normal inbox. We literally got on the phone and discussed it, didn't we? we it's from did. Beth, yes. age 17. I'm currently in the first year of my A levels, writes Beth. I found your podcast beyond refreshing. Always nice to hear. This lockdown's detrimental to my education and work ethic, and I've watched my grades fall and my future options, including university, seem narrower and narrower as I'm kept away from the classroom. I was given the option to go back to school says Beth. But even then, I felt a huge amount of guilt, feeling like I'd be directly responsible for deaths if I did go back. I'm incredibly scared, and I'm experiencing sleepless nights over the thought of not getting into university because of this lockdown. Then the announcement, we may not even be going back in September, sent me into hysterics. Now, some people may dismiss that kind of language, but this is a 17-year-old kid. She writes beautifully. She talked a lot in her email about not being able to study at home the environment wasn't there but that really got to me that email Alison the human fallout from this failure to get back to school.
0: I think we were both very moved by Beth weren't we and I think we could probably relate to that where where you're in an environment where school is your main chance out you know and uh, the fact she can't go in and use the library she probably doesn't have a study area at home i was very pleased apart from anything else that somebody like her was was listening to planet normal and uh perhaps we can you know reach out to her we both did get back to her didn't we yeah this is from sue i'm fuming says sue fuming fuming <laughs> sue and me both I was watching the BBC News, and amazing.
2: Steaming is the technical phrase, Alison. You're <laughs> oh, oh. St- you can be angry, then fuming, and then beyond fuming, steaming. I basically Ste- think you're steaming most of the time, so let's be clear about
0: that. <laughs> this, is, this is me being relatively mild-mannered, Mr. Halligan. So Sue said, "I'm fuming." I was watching the BBC News, and a major breakthrough was re- reported with dexamethasone treatment for coronavirus. Instead of hailing this as unprecedented in the time it took to recruit, perform and report the clinical trial and how much difference it will make to some very poorly people, the BBC chose to focus instead on how many lives would have been saved if only we had it sooner. How could it have happened sooner? Did the BBC think we can just give random drugs to sick people on the off chance? This is irresponsible and biased reporting, which must stop. I may need to stop watching the BBC, Alison and Liam, altogether, as my blood pressure goes off the scale and I'm not likely to get a GP appointment any time soon. Well said, Sue.
2: This has been a real kind of theme of our reviews that we've had. A lot of people concerned about the coverage of their hearing amongst the broadcasters, planet normal's like a clove of garlic protecting me from the BBC, said uh, one (laughs) contributor. At last, somewhere I can go to get a common-sense view of the world among the woke hysteria of the mainstream.
0: I particularly liked this message from Joseph about the um, destroying of statues. Winston Churchill, Bomber Harris, they've got a lot to answer for. If it wasn't for them, I'd be blonde, blue-eyed and fluent in German. (laughs) (laughs)
2: And on that bombshell...
0: And on that bombshell...
2: That's it, uh, listeners, our fourth visit to Planet Normal. I'm delighted to say that after our one-month pilot period, our Telegraph overlords have decided that Planet Normal's here to stay. There's no getting rid of us. Thanks to your positive ratings and reviews, our weekly trips will continue. So do join us next week and every week. And before then, please send us your thoughts. Alison and I read all the emails on anything you like to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk.
0: Yes, and if you're not already a subscriber, you can get the first 30 days free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash normal. And we'll put that link in the show notes on your podcast app. Liam and I both have columns in the Telegraph and hope you'll enjoy those as well.
2: And the links to our columns that we've discussed they'll also be in the information below the line in the show do keep the ratings and reviews coming that will help us build a bigger planet normal as Lion shriver says she wants as those ratings help more people to find us and join us.
0: And most importantly of all, please subscribe to this feed to make sure you don't miss our upcoming episodes. Our wonderful producer, Louisa, is helping all people like me who don't know what a podcast is, so you should be able to find us. If you don't know how to subscribe or leave a rating, email us and ask on planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk.
2: So as we leave Planet Normal for this fourth time, speed back to the mad world that's planet Earth... It's time for re-entry, so strap yourself in. Thanks to our producer, Louisa Wells, our editor, Theo Leloudis. So until next Thursday, it's goodbye from me.
0: And it's goodbye from him.
1: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.